Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Women podcast. My name is Camilla Marcus, and today I'm speaking with Hala Hassan, a dear friend, but also a culinary triple threat dynamic chef, incredible recipe developer, and bold entrepreneur. She's the founder and CEO of Best Best Foods, a line of condiments inspired by her home country of Somalia, a fast-growing brand that has been featured in Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Eater, and more. Her first cookbook meets Travelogue in BB's Kitchen. It's incredible. Get a copy now if you don't already have one. Shares recipes and stories from her grandmothers or BB's in eight African countries bordering the Indian Ocean. Welcome, Hawa, and thank you again for taking the time to chat with us. Camilla, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here, and I, I miss you so much in New York. I know. If only we could do these in person. It feels so close yet so far. Yeah, for sure. Well, so just starting to set the stage again, you know, the great part about this podcast is hopefully reaching a new audience. And I obviously know you so well, and you're so notable in the food world. But I think for those listening, just to set the stage, in 2014, you moved from your modeling career to launching your own hot sauce and chutney business, Best Best. Talk to me about the career change. What was it taking that leap? What do you wish you had known before? I mean, it was a big point of transformation, which you know, it's almost 10 years ago now, which probably seems like a distant memory. But I think especially in the wake of the pandemic, a lot of people are taking stock of their lives, thinking about sort of big steps and big changes. And I think it's a, a great place to start sort of telling, you know, telling the listeners what that was like making such a big, such a big shift. Yeah, I often try to think back to that time, because I remind myself of you know, sometimes I feel like I drowned a bit in the big picture and like looking forward to the final destination. And so sometimes I find myself daydreaming about 2014 and how naive I was and how eager to learn I was. And, you know, ultimately what really drove me into starting my own business and creating this lane for myself was I'd been in this career of modeling at that point for almost 16 years since I was a child. And I was always a part of other people's stories and just always felt like I didn't have my own. And I am, as you know, someone who's really strong headed. And I think that I'm very fair and have a hard time just standing by while things happen to me. And I, I thought that that's what modeling was doing to me. I was I think turning 28 and it was starting to feel like life was really running away from me and you know they say you always age out of modeling and it's best to leave before you do so I just wanted to develop stories that pertain to people who looked like me and myself and I wanted to center my experience and other people's experience and I knew I just couldn't do that being a model at least I didn't have the option I think there's some models who do an incredible job of that, but I didn't have the option. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think so many people are facing that right now. Something sort of takes over and you think, what am I doing with my life and time that's so precious? So talk to me about getting into food and food writing. I mean, what was calling your name with that sort of profession? I mean, food, as we know, is a huge industry. There's so many different options. What sort of drew you to to that side of the business? I just thought it was an easy way to share culture. And I knew that a lot of people used food as a gateway into other people's lives and tables. And I thought, okay, I have this consumer packaged goods business, which I wanted to create because 
it felt to me it was almost an easier way to get to the table. You know, I wanted to inch my way onto the table. And so I was like, mm -hmm. this to me seems easy and feels like it's not intrusive. But once I get to the table, it'll be nice to start moving along to other plates. And so that's where recipe writing came from. Because I can show you how to use my condiments, but I really wanted to have bigger conversations about where those flavors came and how they've impacted my life. So you've been in the food business. It's something that speaks to you. You have such an incredible background and story. What was the process to writing in baby's kitchen it's such a big piece of you i mean the book is beautiful the recipes are incredible but i feel like it has such a big piece of you in it it's remarkable it's so unique what was that process you know you've been in the business now like i said almost 10 years i think a lot of people don't really understand how hard it is to write and publish a book you know what's something most people don't tell you about writing a book and can you give us a little bit of background on that journey yeah, I think people think it's a glamorous process. There's nothing glamorous <laughs> about writing a cookbook. It's exhausting. And I think oftentimes the bigger misconception is, is that you make money from writing cookbooks, but you don't. <laughs> so <laughs> if money is your motivator, probably not an avenue for you to explore. But it was it was exhausting. It was exhilarating. It was sometimes uplifting. Sometimes I think... 2018 must have been one of the harder years of my life because I felt this heaviness of having to tell these stories that were so much bigger than me. And so having to put all of that on paper, making sure that I represented the subjects that were featured in the book with tenderness and care, I, I mean, all of that stayed with me. It was like I couldn't get away from it, you know? And then to be writing about eight countries where I only really know one very well, which is Somalia, you know, that was hard. So I had to put together a group of people that I like to call my brain trust and depend on them to guide me and give me cultural antidotes about each country and correct me and teach me. So it was a humbling experience. And like I said, it was exhausting, but ultimately I came at it feeling like I can do this again now I know what I'm doing <laughs> <laughs> I know it is funny I think it always looks so easy because there's so much hidden work and you see this beautiful piece right and you go and buy it and I think people have no clue it's a multi-year process what was the timeline from proposal to publish sold in 2018 started working April 2019 so from October that fall I basically had five to six months to get everybody on paper, figure out who the grandmothers were, figure out where I was going to go, figure out how to get the, our photographer from Nairobi to New York twice. <laughs> and then the logistics of just getting her across Africa was also a big piece of the book and its success. Khadija's fluidity, the way that she's Kenyan, but Somali, but also a girl from Dallas, really helped this project to thrive in the way that it has. So I think people oftentimes think that you've got ton of time, but you don't. So from April, 2019, the book was due September, 2019. Wow. So quick turnaround. Takes a village, right? How do you hope people will use the book? To me, it's such an authentic and unique vehicle to share cross-cultural sharing through food and such a different lens of a traditional cookbook. 
what's your hope for sort of what the book can do? Everything in this book was intentionally chosen. There were a ton of people who went over each line with a fine tooth comb from the name BB. Like in 2018, I was like, we're moving into the space where people are starting to call each other sis and sister. And you know, you see on Instagram, BB is like really hip and trendy. We all have grandmothers. So there are all these like layers and pieces in which the American reader can pick up this book and instantly see themselves in the book. And that was my hope. And now like having it out in the world for almost six months and seeing people adopt these recipes, you know, tailor them for their kitchen and their family has been so rewarding and so fun to watch. And then people getting emotional because they're like, I've been wanting something like this my whole life. Like my grandmother didn't keep our pilaf recipe. My, you know, my mom didn't teach us how to make the suqar. So to have this on our table has been so, so refreshing. And, and to some degree, like, you know, tapping into a new parts of themselves. It's been wonderful. Just, yeah, the whole thing has just been really wonderful. The after, like now I feel like I'm living in the afterglow <laughs> of the book. Does it feel surreal or, or sort of like about time? <laughs> I think sometimes surreal, especially when I think about my relationship with the babies, because we're on such different time zones. Sometimes I'll wake up and I'll have a WhatsApp message that is so loving. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff really drives me. I don't think the tension that the book has gotten, it makes me really happy to be able to put something that's new on the table. But ultimately, I'm not really driven by that kind of thing. But community really excites me. One of the stories that immediately comes to mind when I think about Mbibi's kitchen is the very first BB I met, which was Ma Vicky. Ma Vicky is a princess from Tanzania, and she came to the States in the late 80s, early 90s, left her children behind, and lives in Yonkers. And so the very first time I went to her house, I used her actually as an example for my proposal. She taught me how to make matoke, which is like beef with green plantains. She's someone who I'm so close to still. And I, when I think about the warmth of her and how she so openly shared her story and her life and her children and her home. And I ended up going back three times to her after our first visit. So that's a story that's always fresh in my mind because she anchored this whole book. Like I said, I mean, I think it's such a unique book with such a unique voice and a positioning around people and food and families and culture. And and again, I think it it could only have come from you, right? Growing up in Somalia, moving in, and being raised in Seattle, now living in New York with you know most of your family in Norway. It's such a global perspective and one that's rooted so humbly, as you said, in people and the relationships that you have, the people that you care for, and you do it with such such attention to detail, such immense purpose, immense care that I think and we'll dig into this as the meat of the conversation, but. I don't think that that is typical of journalism as much, particularly now. I think it's we're sort of turning into clickbait culture. So to me, your book was such an antidote and felt so much more of a full anthology and something that was deeper and personal. How do you see that in the larger context of food journalism today? I don't know. Like I think about food journalism and honestly, there are only a few people that pop into my mind that I feel like really did it the way that I would want 
to see it in the world. I think so much of what's happening right now is informed by TikTok and like you said, clickbait and what's new and trendy and that kind of stuff drives me nuts because we're in this hamster wheel. And for me, it always feels like, well, where's the meat of this thing? How do you grow this thing if next week we're moving on to something else? And so I try to stay out of it and I try to keep my head down and introduce new things that are exciting and interesting to me and are deeply rooted in people. And that's what excites me the most. And so I really try not to involve myself on social media or even outside of social media. If my ethos doesn't align with a journalist or a magazine, I just don't appear in it, you know? And what a privilege to have that luxury, I think. I'm kind of rambling, but I think the whole thing is, a, it's, it's a little messy right now, especially because we're all stuck at home and maybe not being as inspired as we might've been in the past, but it very much feels forced and TikTok informed. Along those notes, one of the big issues today is appropriation. I mean, I feel like that's such an unfortunately sort of new spotlight on this part of the industry. And obviously, it's been going on for a long time and in different forms at different scales. What's your take on the new attention of appropriation being a real dark side to this business? I'm not sure exactly what's particularly being done as a structural solution, but how do you see it from your perspective? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I don't know what the solution is. And I don't know that everyone in food is on the same page about how to move forward. You're seeing ton of new hires at these bigger publications that two years ago, the person who was writing about West African food is like a middle-aged white man at the New York <laughs> Times, you know? And so it, I don't know, all of it to me, again, feels like we keep having these moments and I don't know if there's going to be any real change. And then we keep having these escape goats where we put these certain people forward and we say, this person did this wrong, as opposed to like, we've all done this thing wrong. We've all appropriated. We've all haven't given credit. It's not been an inclusive industry, right? How do we change that from the top on down? And so, yeah, I, I don't really know what the answer is. I do know that more people should be able to tell their stories from their perspective based on where they're rooted in, as opposed to these opportunities that are being given out to people who can't even identify with those places. So, yeah, I don't know what the structure, I don't know what the long-term solution is, but I do know that we're in a bit of a mess right now. What do you consider appropriation? Because I also think um, that's part of it, right? I actually right. think a lot of people can't answer that question. And that's probably a huge part of the problem. I think that for me, especially when it comes to recipe writing, it is this almost columbusing of recipes and then calling it something really flimsy as opposed to doing it justice, right? As opposed to saying like, this is a curry. I learned it from this person. Here are the people who traditionally cook it hear the recipes in it, hear the ingredients and where they come from. Like you dumb down the audience where you take that option away from everyone involved, right? So for, for me, it's the Columbusing of things that don't belong to you without giving context to your audience. So name that, changing, not sharing origin, you know, pretending it's you clean out your pantry it. moment. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, right. I just found this can of curry. Right. Woohoo. I, I mean, 
hi everyone i just created this for us it's like no you didn't <laughs> why do you think all of a sudden there is this attention and sort of a call to it i sort of have my theory that it to me seems like the public's actually starting to care two years ago like no one seemed to care about the origin or the context or the place of something what do you think sort of wagging the dog on this that's starting to make this become something that someone's accountable for because right obviously no one was accountable for it before what do you think has caused the rise thankfully it is the young people who are now the consumers of these things ba traditionally was like a midwest middle of america magazine and their age group was a certain you know type of people now it's like young people who go to youtube to learn how to make souffle of such and such and so I, I think it's really being driven by the Gen Z and the millennials that are using food as a cultural gateway and are not making as much money as their parents and are not dining out, whether it be by choice or pandemic. I think the market research is there. Food Network desperately wants to get out of being their mom's network of choice. They no longer want to be that. Hence, they're creating content with a lot of people who look like me and a lot of people who are young. Yeah. Well, I think the digital aspect is interesting because we've obviously had the internet for forever, but it only seems like now people are looking it up and to your point, digging in. But we also still sort of have a culture of very little fact checking and everyone sort of feels like, oh, I'll print a retraction if I have to and who reads the right. retraction anyway. I mean, it's really fast and loose. And I sort of have seen that change over the past five years. And I think with Certainly food media being totally cycloned, I think no no more drastically than the last two years. What's that been like from your perspective in front of and behind the scenes? Yeah, I, this is a tough one for me because, you know, everything I do, I want to do it with intention and integrity. And that hasn't always been cool. I've left spaces I wasn't welcomed in very quietly. And so to see it just all come to the surface and then now to have people pay me attention who wouldn't even speak to me in rooms where it was like 10 or five of us having dinner, it's sometimes it's surreal and other times it's like the deep rooted issue is still there, which is there is not there's all these buzzwords but there's really no systematic change right so again i'm doing what i've always done which is doing the work on my own terms and carrying on like none of this stuff is exciting or interesting to me unless there's systematic change so what do you do so you're sitting at a dinner party someone's talking you up who has no recollection that they've totally snubbed and ignored you before what do you do Oh, nothing. I say thank you and I carry on because my energy is too precious. <laughs> I, I read it. I'm like, wow, that's a glowing review. Do you not remember speaking to me for like the last three years? <laughs> um, that's yeah, got to be just, hard, though, because you're outspoken. You know, you just are as a person. I mean, it's one of my favorite qualities about you. You're you're so eloquent. You don't hold back. That's got to be hard to sit there. The headlines are transformation and things are changing. And I'm sort of with you. I think there's still a huge undercurrent as opposed to what the headlines are saying. Yeah. But for me, I think where I'm at is like, I have work to do and my work is so centered on the people that are directly affected by me that I don't have, you know, I, 
imagine had I been on Instagram, for lack of a better word, like talking smack about BA when they were really disrespectful towards me, you know, and so openly treated me poorly. It wouldn't have served me and it wouldn't have served the greater good of what needed to be done, right? Which was that like, that system had to be outed and it had to only be outed the way that it was. Yeah. Well, I I think from the inside out makes it more credible and, you know, stickier for lack of a better word. Yeah. I don't have a lot of energy and the little energy that I do have, I really do want to use it for good. And I am outspoken, but I'm outspoken about things that I'm passionate about. And so someone not speaking to me at a dinner party, I don't really care. I I remember this so vividly. I was on this panel once and this woman, this Hispanic woman who was on this panel said, when you're the elephant in the room, make sure to talk to the mouse. I remember feeling so gutted because I was like, I go to all of these food events and no one speaks to me. Like I'm in the corner on my third glass of wine. Like, have I been here for 30 minutes so I can leave? And now to be in this space where like everyone wants to pretend that, oh, we've been, we've known her for so long. If that feels good to that person, then I, they're letting me know that they have work to do so that I can depend on them. I hope that makes sense. Absolutely, and it's, you know, and it's a brutal context, that's the truth. You're brave and you're resilient about it, but it is a brutal context and it's hard when you do work hard and like you said, you've been in the business a long time. So I guess it begs the question, are there any white knights? Where's the Uh, safe space in the industry? Oh God, I mean, in my sister circle, in the woman that I'm really close to in the business that I go to for things. I mean, I, you, myself, and Ali used to sit down like once a month at 11 a.m. Does that even exist anymore? I don't know. You know we, used, <laughs> we used to go and have breakfast together like on a random Monday. My friendships with women who are in consumer packaged goods, like that's what drives me. I know that I can always go to my Rolodex of women who are in the business and say, I have this thing going on and run it by them and know that I'll get honest feedback. And there are some men like Howie Khan, who's like one of the great loves of my life. (laughs) He is, shout out Howie. We love you, we adore you. I would agree. And if anyone hasn't heard his podcast, Takeaway Only, it really was transformative during the pandemic. It was like my helpline. So tell me, I mean, I'd love to know, tell me one example someone in, as you said, your sister circle, who's really been transformative for you? I would say someone, there's so many, but someone who I work with closely every day now, Aaron Patkin, who prior to pandemic came to me and was like, I really love your business. I really adore you. I think you could benefit from having someone like me come into your company and synchronize things for you. And I was like, let's sit down and have a conversation. And Aaron is someone who just understands equality and injustice in a very fundamental way and one that I can identify with. So many people want to invite me into their space and put me on their panels, but no one wants to give me equity, which I find so fascinating. I'm like, I've got a great little company. I've proven myself. I've been here. I've been doing the work. Why don't people understand in order for this thing to go from here to there, like people like me need help. Aaron is somebody who has come in and said, you deserve this. You deserve this. Let's go get it for you. That's incredible. Also, Aaron, another incredible woman and entrepreneur who also has a new book. 
I've yep. been cooking a lot from the Evanly book. Very easy baking and whole ingredients. She's a savant. What areas are the biggest need? Is it finance? Is it distribution? Is it operations? You know, not just for you, but where do you see it again from sort of your perspective in the business? You talked about equity and needing help. What specific areas do you think are the most important? So Camilla, just to go back to your question, I I think ultimately you start at finance because if you take care of that part, then you can take care of operations. You can take care of distribution. You can take care of marketing. You know, if you don't have any money, I, ultimately you don't really have a business that's going to be functional. Yeah. So what's the one piece of advice that you wish everyone got from Aaron that you held on to and said, all right, if I could mail this to a million people, here's what I would tell them. I don't know if it's from Aaron, but I know it's something that I've heard over and over again. And it's one that I hold on to. As you know, operating a business is no easy fate. And what I'm often reminded is, is why? Like, what is my why? And that no matter how hard things are, that is my driving force. Like, why am I doing this? So what is your why? My interest is really to change the rhetoric around Africa and African food. And I know I can do that through consumer packaged goods, through books, through TV shows. And I am doing that. It's so true. I think also not forgetting, look, in the hustle and the stress and the doubt and difficult, challenging dinner parties and all the clutter. It's true. It's about, I think, centering on your North Star and not straying from that. And I think you've proven time and time again, regardless of whether, as you said, it was cool at the time. I don't know. I, I'm a big believer in that cream rises to the top. I just do. I think if you do things for the right reason, it might be longer. It might not be a TikTok viral video, but you'll still be there 10 years later, which is probably more important. Oh, absolutely. I think it's one of the things I have working for me is I have so much clarity around who I am and where I'm headed that all of the small things often just, they kind of really bounce off of me. And we're in a space. I say this every day at home. I'm like, I'm not curing cancer. You know, I'm creating food. And we're in a space right now for lack of of better word is really loud. So it's nice to be able to just be so clear on exactly what it is that I want to do and to always be looking forward to where I'm headed. In that vein of your North Star and staying centered on why you do what you do, there is a lot of, again, rising criticism especially recently around sort of that weeknight, easy go-to recipes. Again, that kind of clickbait culture around recipes, obviously very geared towards white audiences and, and really dumbing down, I think, the profession, frankly. What do you think has to change? How's your approach to trying to change and uproot that? And again, I think it is a disservice to what you do and the industry, but that has been sort of the the bread and butter until now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to take the people at the top to realize their audience is slowly changing and that they don't have to dumb it down for their audience to want to cook the things that they're offering. I don't know when that'll become the norm, but I really ultimately, when you are luring in your audience by giving language that you feel is I guess not not helpful to what you're trying to sell, but it, like you said, it's it's clickbait and it's so obvious. And so I hope that the audience demands the way that they've been demanding more respect 
and holding our feet to the fire to some degree. And that shows up in the way that they're buying books, the way that they're consuming content on social media. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what comes of the food industry in the next two to three years. And also a lot of that will change depending on who's writing these recipes, right? With the New York Times recently hiring a bunch of people of color and black people, I'm excited to see what they're recipes are going to look like on Wednesdays. <laughs> Hopefully a new perspective. If you dig in, what does a more equitable food media future look like to you? I mean, it certainly has to go further than recipe writers, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's about who gets book deals. It's about who's going to be on TV. And again, not like the same two Black chefs, not the same two people of color. And those people too, right? Like they have a huge responsibility to the industry and their community by sharing the mic. If you're a chef who's often called on, it's your job then to call on someone else that looks like you. Do you see that happening or not as much? Do I see it happening? Do I think it needs to happen more? I absolutely think it needs to happen more. I can only speak for myself and say that I try to share the mic as much as possible and often not so visibly. Like I'm not on social media like I did this, but I think the people at the top do not pass the mic and are not creating more space for other people who look like them. And that might not be a popular opinion, but that's mine. Yeah. I mean, I tend to agree. I think that especially in food media, there's sort of this perception of scarcity. And so I do think it becomes a little bit of hoarding rather than, you know, as much collaboration as I personally wish there was. Even if you get a chance to write a recipe and you're X person who has a big following, I don't know, why can't you co-write it, right? Or why can't it right. be inspired by someone to your point of, okay, I saw this recipe or I'm really inspired by this person that maybe doesn't have a following. I think there's also ways to share the mic in small ways that could make a big difference that I don't really see very often. No, absolutely. And it's what I was saying earlier about us in food. We're kind of in a vacuum and we speak in that vacuum and we speak to the same people all the time. And I would challenge people at these magazines to start incorporating talent that they're not familiar with. You don't have to come to Hawa Hassan anymore. I've said this to my editors. I've said this to my publishing house. I cannot speak about the same thing over and over and over again. There are other people who have more to say about that from a fresher perspective and are closer to it, you know? <laughs> so if you want to talk about refugee, that's not my perspective. I was only there a year. There's other refugees making wonderful food. You should be looking to tap into them and their community. And you mentioned something that we would be remiss not to call out specifically. The number one metric that people use right now is social media following, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, oh, what's your following? Oh, I'm not sure if you can have that spot. I really don't think most people realize that. I don't think the public realizes that. It's I mean, super limiting. It's totally ridiculous in a world where you can buy followers and it's controlled by robots. It's kind of crazy. It's wild. I was saying this to a girlfriend the other day. I think it's a double-edged sword because the industry is going through a facelift. The audience is also having an awakening. And then there are some people in the industry that are seen as leaders and have almost a million followers. And when they say, go follow Hawa Hassan, all of their people come to me. And now the person who's new to my space doesn't realize this is not just a space about food. It's a space that's open for conversation about race, 
identity, my life, like all of it is here. I'm not curating anything. And you see this with everybody, all of my black and people of color friends who got a rush of follows during the uprising are now like, yeah, those people are gone. And it's because they themselves do not even identify with the person that they've started to follow. They just went there because they were feeling guilty that they were only consuming information from a certain type of person. And so I, I don't know where it starts. Does it start at the magazine level where more people have access to the pages and then ultimately into these people's kitchens? Is that the route as opposed to like just blindly following someone? I, I don't, I probably went off subject, but. No, it's, I, totally, no, it's on topic. I mean, like I said, I mean, for the record, Hala has 50,000 followers. It's no joke, <laughs> but it is crazy that it is empty and vapid in so many ways. And yet it is publishing currency. And I know people who've been told we would have published your cookbook, but you need more followers because we need a social media foundation to promote with. You just published a book, you know, it's a very heavy lift on the author which oh, I think is absolutely. also not understood. Absolutely. During the first proposal, I had to write on there how many followers I had. And I think it was like 2,800. <laughs> I, and I, I thought like, great. Like, you know, my page had been private up until like, I think two years ago, three years ago, because I didn't want to always be interacting with people I didn't know. But it, yeah, it's, it's, so it's what's life strange... like on the other side as a social media influencer? How? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not an influencer, but, you know, it's, I have to say, like, it's been really nice to be in conversation with people who are in Wisconsin and in yeah. Maryland, sometimes in the Philippines. Like, it's just nice to hear people say, oh, my grandmother used to make that. Or my family mm. has that same rice dish, but we do it this way. It's been so wonderful to connect with people. As you know, like yourself, I am, a, like, I love connection. <laughs> I know I miss being in person and hugging and touching and <laughs> yeah. sharing one dish and sharing cutlery. I, yeah. I hope for those days to return. So it sounds like you're the white knight, Hala, if I dare to say. I mean, I think it's uh, uh, using uh, social media. Yes. Don't put so that on me. <laughs> no, but using social media for good, which is what it was intended originally to do, right? Is not to right. be a vapid currency, but meant to be a connector, particularly global, and to be able to have such interesting points of dialogue and education and inspiration and sharing a meal, right? With someone that you'll never otherwise meet. I mean, that's right. what it's really meant to do. That's what I love about social media. That part, I really love. Not the other stuff so much, but I really, really, really <laughs> love that part. Well, Hawa, you are incredible. You know, I could talk to you for hours. I miss you terribly. And we always end every episode. This is the future of women and it is forward looking. And so I always like to ask, what's next. So in your mind, what's next for the food media industry and how can we get better informed for the future? What I see happening next is a bunch of people who are going to be in charge of their own stories. I think our tables are going to get longer. I think that we'll see more flavor being introduced to us. 
because we're going to be allowing more people in. And I, I look forward to that. I think that for me is really exciting. And I think it's why people like yourself are working for equitable systems. And it shows every day by the work that yourself and so many other people are doing online. So that's what I'm really excited about. I'm excited two years from now to be cooking with my God babies and making a Malaysian recipe that I otherwise wouldn't have had it not been for people I'll meet along the way. And knowing where it came from and who Absolutely. started it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Hala, again, we cannot thank you enough. And for those who don't have it again, please do yourself a favor and buy a copy of In BB's Kitchen. It's truly, like I said, a one of a kind book and and so cookable and helps you really connect, as you said, to just so many different families and cultures and bring such richness to your own home life and get some best, best sauces. Her food is incredible. And again, Hawa, we are just grateful to you for your leadership, for your insight, your bravery and your creativity. We know that there is a bright future ahead and much more that I know you're going to be doing. So excited to circle back and to follow up with what's next for you too. Thank you, Camilla. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. I'm so lucky to call you a friend.